Guys, grab your Bibles, open them on up to Mark chapter 10. We are back in the book of Mark after spending a week over in Luke. I know you guys just sat down, but would you stand in honor of God's word? And let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. God's word says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that we can have this morning. Lord, I pray you would give us anxious hearts. Lord, not anxious for the cares of this world, but anxious to hear the words of our maker, of our master, of our king. Lord, there are areas we admit, we confess now, there are areas in our life that are not conformed to your kingdom. There are areas in your life that you want to lovingly, graciously correct. And Lord, would we listen this morning to hear those areas? God, would you encourage us with the gospel as it is so central here this morning. God, make us students, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can seat. Grab a seat. So I watched a movie recently that I had kind of forgotten about. And uh, 
was <clears throat> it was a movie that I watched a lot when I was a kid. Maybe you guys have heard of it. What about Bob? Have you guys ever seen this movie? Yeah, what about Bob? Okay, good. So What About Bob is a funny movie. Uh, there's two characters played by Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. Bill Murray plays uh, basically uh, a crazy person, uh, so seemingly, and Richard Dreyfuss plays, uh, plays the quote-unquote normal person. Um, I was laughing really through this entire movie, um, but I was also just struck with how resounding some of the premises are. So Dr. Marvin is, he's sort of the man. He is sort of the together man, right? He's very successful and people call him and people schedule meetings with him and he's, you know, got the nice cabin on Lake Winnipesaukee and and his life is very together and his family is very together and he's very proud of himself and very proud of his life. That's Dr. Marvin, okay? Uh, And then there's Bob, okay? And Bob, Bill Murray, he's this clingy, childish, awkward, crippled hypochondriac Uh, who drives everyone nuts, who carries a goldfish around um, on his neck. And he's really the poster child for not having it together, right? So Dr. Marvin has it all together. Bob, not so much, right? And and this this whole movie is funny because really at the end of the day, Bob ends up driving Richard Dreyfuss literally insane, and it's funny. Okay, but although it's funny, there's a really true narrative in this movie that I think all of us resoundeth. And that is that oftentimes it's the people that seem to be the most together that end up being the most crazy. Have you found that? And oftentimes it's the person who is the most willing to admit that they're crazy that ends up getting their stuff together. See, at the end of the movie, they basically trade positions. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Dr. Marvin becomes the crazy person and Bob becomes sort of the sane person. It's, it's really kind of interesting and I think it resounds with much of our experience that we have. You know, there's a similar parable in the Bible that Jesus gives to, to this. Uh, it's this, this. Really, it's the tale of two sons. You know it as the prodigal son. Uh, most of us wrongly and correctly think of the story as being a story about someone who squandered their father's inheritance and went off and ended up living with the pigs, came back, and his, his father accepted him, and he repented, and he changed. But really, that story is about two sons. It's about the, the son who was not together and the son who was together. Remember, the, the, the prodigal comes back, and when he comes back, the older brother, the brother that didn't run away, the brother that didn't squander his father's earnings, uh, he's jealous, he's indignant, he's frustrated at his father's kindness, right? It's basically, what about Bob, right? You, you have the person that you would think would never get healed, the person sleeping with the pigs ends up being the one who's ultimately healed, and the person that had it all together, did all the right things, ultimately was the one that wasn't really healed, Our text this morning is very, very similar to this kind of a dichotomy. It's very much this juxtaposition of of someone who you wouldn't think would be important, someone who you wouldn't think would be healed or given entrance into the kingdom of heaven, juxtaposed to someone who you think would. Our story is is very similar. Our story, our text this morning is, um, it is a literal playing out of the choked seed. Do you remember the four seeds Jesus talked about in his parable? One of them fell on rocky ground. One of them, uh, you know, and was snatched by the birds of the air. Uh, another one um, was chucked too far. One of them was chucked into the thorns. One of them was chucked into, uh, basically, it was choked out by what? The cares of this world. So our, our text this morning is really a real-life example of what it happens when the cares of this world, what it happens when the things that you love about this world really choke out the life of God that's put within you. 
So that's what we're going to look at this morning. This text is a sobering reminder of the reality of what happens when we love ourselves more than we love God, or when we love what God gives more than we love God himself. So let's take a look at it. Mark chapter 10. We already read it. Let's work our way back through it. Now, if you remember in the story and in the narrative as, as we're, we're following Mark's gospel, Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples these very um, foreign, these very tr- extraterrestrial ideas about the kingdom of God, and they're, just, and they're not really interfacing with them. They're very confused, and there's been time and time again where Jesus is putting forth something to them, and they just they don't understand it. Uh, and, and this is happening over and over again, and this is really what's going to happen again. So verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, throughout the gospel, we keep seeing the disciples doing strange things that you just you can't understand why they would do it, right? Uh, if you remember just a few chapters back, Jesus uh, had some very specific things to say about the importance of children in the kingdom of God. He even talked about what would happen if you caused a little one remember, to stumble. He said, you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and jump off the bridge. Okay, so Jesus had some very explicit things to say about kids. And now, ironically, as they're in the crowd, the disciples, uh, who are self-proclaimed crowd management, self-proclaimed gatekeepers for Jesus' attention, they're off to the side, shuffling away some families that want Jesus to lay hands and bless their children. Now, the disciples, for whatever reason, they just they think it's their job to decide who gets access to Jesus. Okay, they, they just think that, that somewhere they thought that was in their job description. And, and so Jesus, out of the corner of his eye, probably as he's interacting with someone else, he catches these disciples going, now get out of here, shooing away a family. And, and listen to how he reacts in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. I had to look up that word. Here's the uh, definition of indignant in the English language. Feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. Jesus is ticked off. He's ticked off. He sees that these kids are being shuffled away, and he's so indignant. He's so frustrated. Now, why are the disciples shuffling these kids away? The reason is because, in, you know, in our culture, this is kind of lost on us. We've talked about this before. In our culture, children are very central to our culture, right? We, we love children. We prize children. We make parks for children. We care about our schools, uh, for the most part, in our culture, right? Well, in this culture, children were not viewed that way. Children were the lowest tier of the socioeconomic scale. They were the least, they were considered the least important, least powerful. Really, kids were only good for when they grew up, because then they would take care of you when you got old. They were an inheritance, really. Uh, but, but ultimately, kids were not important. So they're shuffling these kids away. Why? Because the disciples are still thinking like the world. They're still thinking like the world. They're still thinking in terms of, of power uh, and position and levels of, of importance. And they're going, Jesus is too important for these kids. Now, they still haven't really understood the fact that Jesus doesn't think that way. He doesn't think that way at all, right? So look at how Jesus responds. When, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying there? I'll tell you one thing he's saying. He's, he's saying that every, every child that has died um, as, as a baby or as a young child, every child who's died in the womb, every miscarriage is with the Lord. I'll tell you that right now. He's saying every person that has a child 
like brain, someone that maybe has, has mentally handicapped or is not really under, capable of understanding some of these things are with the Lord. He's saying, look, these kids that you're shuffling away, they are citizens of the kingdom. They belong to the kingdom and you're shuffling them away. These should be the, the most important people that you see in the crowd. And then 15, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not Enter it. Now, that verse right there is important. It's the key to our whole passage today. So I want you to, to really take note of it. It's going to make the next section we're going to read with Jesus and the rich young ruler, it's going to make it all make sense. He's saying, if you don't receive the kingdom like a child, you can't get into it. Now, what is Jesus not saying? He's not saying that if you are not childish, you can't get into the kingdom. He's not saying that if you don't have a childlike wonder or a childlike faith, you can't get into the kingdom. What is he saying? He's saying if you do not have a childlike station, he's, you know, what, what is he getting at here? What is it about kids that he's trying to communicate gives entrance to the kingdom? It's that kids have nothing to contribute it's that kids have no voice, no authority, no really uh, equity in this world, in this kingdom. He's saying, look, if you want to be, be in the kingdom with me, if you want to be in heaven with me, if you want salvation, you have to foreclose and file bankruptcy on all that you have done to earn in this world and start over. Same thing he told the Nicodemus, remember? Nicodemus is a great man who had studied at the equivalent of multiple doctorates. He was the theologian. He was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He told Nicodemus, you have to climb back, not climb. He, didn't, he said, you have to be born again, to which Nicodemus said, how am I going to do that? What Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you have, to, you have to fork over all your degrees. You have to start over. You have, to, you have to give up everything that you thought you earned in this life. Now, this is all important. Follow me. Jesus is teasing out the key um, to, to what we're going to see in our next encounter. Now, verse 16, just quickly, he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus loves children, by the way. He loves children. And Jesus loves to bless, and he loves to bless children. That's uh, one of the reasons that we love and are so thankful for the children that we have that run around here in this church. They are such a blessing to us. Now, what Mark is going to do here is he's going to juxtapose the, the interaction with the children, which are considered the least important in culture, over against the man who's about to come talk to Jesus, who would be considered one of the most important in culture. I need you to see that, okay? Mark is wanting us to contrast these two. We have the Bob Wiley, and we have the Dr. Marvin, okay? The children are the ones that people would not consider important. This man who's about to come up to Jesus in 17 is one of the most important. So, 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man, note it, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, let me, let me just break this down a little bit for you. Now, you are familiar with this man if you've been reading your Bible uh, because he comes up in all three Gospels. We know him as what? The rich, young ruler. That's a combination of three different things that we learn about him in three different Gospels. One of the Gospels tells us he's rich. 
One of the Gospels tells us he's young and that he's a ruler. Okay, what this means is that this man, he really has the full picture of what someone would desire. He has youth on his side. He has influence on his side. He has um, finances on his side. He's a person of influence. He's someone that others look to. He's very together. He's made the right decisions. He's studied at the right schools. He has the right letters next to his name, the right pedigree. He has the right connections. He dresses the right way. He talks the right way. He has the right connections. He is the picture of a together man. Are you with me? He's the rich, young ruler. Now, you have to ask yourself, and this is part of the intriguing uh, reality of the Bible as you read it. You have to ask yourself, what is a very together, very astute, very influential, very powerful, rich, young man doing running which you don't do in the ancient world when you have a robe on. You don't do it. It was, it was not really something that you did when you're a together person. What is this man doing? Running, falling on his knees, and asking this question with such dependency. Very intriguing. He runs to Jesus and asks him, now I want you to notice, when does he do this? He does this right as Jesus is about to leave. Jesus is packing up him and his disciples, they're about to travel to the next town. That's what they did. And this man, in this moment, as Jesus is about to probably pick up his backpack and throw it over his back, this man runs up and falls at his knees. Why? Well, let's think about the question he's asking. This is a very odd question. It might not be odd to you as uh, Western evangelicals because salvation is at the very center of our message. But for, for a first century Jewish ruler, uh, this is an odd question. His question is, how do I ensure that I have eternal life? How do I ensure that I go to heaven, essentially? That's his question. You say, well, why is that a weird question? Well, first of all, no one's asked this question yet. Not even the disciples. And here's why. Because first century Jews, they didn't think about eternal life. Because they assumed that they had already obtained it. How? By being Jews. If they were circumcised, if they were Jews, they had salvation. Salvation wasn't something they thought about. What they thought about was blessing in this life. And they had a very legalistic idea that heaven is a given because I'm a Jew. Um, and if I want blessing, then I live according to the law. And if I live according to the law, God will bless me. If I don't live according to the law, God will curse me. And so why is this young man thinking about future eternal salvation? It's very interesting. Very interesting. Not to mention, property and prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. So it would seem this guy's really already done everything he can do, should do. What is he doing running up, desperate to ask Jesus this question? Here's what I think. I, I think that this man had done everything he knew how to do in this life and still knew something was missing. And it's freaking him out. It's freaking him out. He's type A. He, he doesn't understand why he's done, he's checked all the right boxes, he's done all the right things, and he still has this nagging, aching sense of something is wrong, something is missing, and he has fear, he's afraid. What happens in the next life? I got this life dialed, what happens in the next life? So he's done all that he can do, and, and that's the problem. See, there's nothing else he can do. And he's terrified about what happens in the next life. Now, he knows Jesus is in town. He knows Jesus is a rabbi of significance, that he seems to be a prophet of God, that he's manifested the power of God. So he throws himself desperately at the feet of Jesus and says, there's something I'm missing here. Can you tell me what I need to, note it, do? 
Jesus, what do I need to do? I've done everything else I know how to do. What do I need to do? Now, Jesus' answer, of course, is very interesting. He says in verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you Trinitarian, Christological theologians are going, huh? Okay, he's not saying he's not God. He's not saying he's not good. He's saying what a rabbi would normally say, which is to say, we only call Yahweh good. So why are you calling me good? It's a, it's a good question. But here's what I think really is happening. I think Jesus is beginning to tease out the idea that he wants to drive home with this young man, and that is this, who is really good? In other words, are you really good? Because we're going to find in a moment this man thinks he's really good. He thinks he's done all the right things. I think that's what Jesus is teasing out here. Verse 19. Now, Jesus is going to draw his attention to the law. He says, you know the commandments. And he lists a few. He, he chooses them carefully. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, Jesus is pretty nice here. He throws a softball. He gives him commandments that he knows are fairly normal, normally kept by a good Jewish man. Yeah, you ever murdered anybody? Nope, never murdered anybody. You ever stole anything? Nope, never stole anything. I mean, this, these are things that, that many people raised in a Christian house could probably say, yeah, I've never done these things either. You ever, you, ever, you ever given false witness about, you ever said somebody did something when they didn't? Have you ever defrauded anyone? Have you respected your father and mother? Well, in that day, if you didn't honor your father and mother, mother they could stone you, okay? So, uh, yeah, he's like, I've done all those things. And what's interesting is that Jesus could have said this. He could have said, what about the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Have you ever done that? Have you ever lusted after a woman? Have you ever wanted something you didn't have? Have you ever, have you ever wished you had something you didn't? You know, he didn't do that. He could have done that and shut him down right away. But Jesus is allowing this guy to put forth his false gospel, which is what? That I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is sort of playing into his, his thinking, his thought process, because he wants to set this man up to really crush his false gospel. Are you with me? He's letting this guy... Uh, air what he sees as the reason that he is good. But yet Jesus knows, and this man knows, that even though he's followed the law so well, he still knows he doesn't have security. Why does he not have security? Why does he not have security? You know, by the way, this man really embodies much of what we see in cultural Christianity today. You know, there's a lot of non-believers that look like Christians. When I was a kid, I thought every non-Christian was like, you know, someone who, who was like snarling murderer or an angry agnostic, you know, or, or something. The, the most non-Christians are in churches. And they're very good at, at, at following the rules just enough to get the things they want to get. And following the rules works pretty good for some people, you know? That's, that's the older son in the prodigal story, right? Sometimes following the rules actually is a better thing for you in the, in the short term. So this man is, is a functional atheist. I mean, he basically is, is, is living for himself, and, and Jesus puts his finger on that. Now, now we see the scalpel come out. Jesus is the physician, okay? He's not only the, the, the physical physician, he's the spiritual physician. And like a good physician, he's going to pull the scalpel out, and he's going to begin to remove or help this man consider how to remove this cancer that's killing him. So look at it, 21. Jesus, note it, looking at him. Jesus, looking at him, what? Loved him. That's so cool. 
He's looking at him and he loves him. Why is that important? It's important because Jesus is not sloppily throwing out advice like we do, right? Well, you should just do this one thing, you know? Or maybe you just need to read your Bible a little more, you know? No, Jesus looks at the man intently, meaning he knows. He sees right through him. He sees right to his backbone. He sees right through his legalistic, self-righteous facade. He sees right past his Louis Vuitton robe. He sees right past his very well-manicured, buff physique. And he goes, I know exactly what you need because I love you. And you've done everything that you think you can do to be successful in this life, but you're lacking one thing. And I'm guessing that the rich young man, as Jesus is saying that, he's going, yes, I'm so good at one things. I put them on my list, I knock them out, and I move on. Usually get another letter next to my name. Perfect. That's what I want, Jesus. Tell me what the one thing is so I can do it. All you type A people are out there like, yeah. Give me it. I'll put it on the list. I'll cross it out. What should I do, Jesus? You lack one thing. And this man was not ready for the gut punch that was about to be dealt when Jesus says these words, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. This man's brain short circuits. He was not expecting. Why was he not expecting that? Because all the theology he'd ever been told was that material blessing is a sign of God's favor. So if God's favor was manifested in his material blessing, then why would God be asking him to get rid of the the very sign of God's favor? It doesn't make sense for him. His first century Jewish brain is short-circuited. You can see a little smoke coming out from his head, right? The fan is spinning. I don't understand. Why would God want to take the thing that proves to everyone that I'm a good person? This badge of honor. And what's Jesus doing here? See, Jesus, like a good physician, is he's looking intently at the patient, and he's attempting to cut the cancer away in a loving and a compassionate way. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not setting a precedent for salvation. He is deploying a test for idolatry identification. Do you understand the difference? He's not saying anyone that wants to be saved has to give everything to the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this man has an idol. And in order for that idol to be exposed, I need you to see how you react when I take that thing from you. You never know, you never know when you love something too much until someone takes it from you. You never know uh, if, if you care too much about your image until someone says something bad about you. How you react tells you about how much you've made of that thing. This man maybe didn't realize he was a materialist and Jesus, until Jesus said, why don't you go get rid of everything you own? And his reaction immediately is, Ugh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Listen, Jesus is not creating a problem for this man. He's revealing the problem. Do you understand the difference? He is revealing that this man is not possessing things. Listen, he's not possessing things. He's possessed by things. There's a difference. God is not anti-possessions. But God loves you too much to let you be possessed by anything. And this man's things have taken hold of him. Their talons have sunk into him. 
Now, it would be reductionistic to assume that this is just stuff. It's not like we're watching an episode of Hoarders, right? You ever watch that show where the, guy, the, the lady shows up and she's like, can I throw this empty Pringles can away? And they're like, no! Like, that's not, that's not what's going on. I just want to make sure you're awake. Um, you, you ever watch that show? I mean, it's crazy. Like, don't throw my empty Pringles can away. You know, that's not what's going on here. This isn't just this guy's stuff. It's not just his stuff. It's his security. It's his identity. It's his currency. It's his comfortability. And listen, it's his trajectory. It's everything that he knows and loves in this world. You know, it's reduction. I used to say it myself. I don't really care about money. I was actually corrected one time by an older gentleman. He said, yes, you do. I said, no, I don't care about money. He said, do you care about putting gas in your car? Well, yeah. Do you care about getting a latte on your way to work? Well, yeah. So then you care about money. See, money represents your entire life. It represents what you do, the decisions you make, the freedoms that you have, the relationships that you're able to carry on, the trips that you're able to take, the security that you have. And Jesus has just pushed on a nerve that is exposed, and this man is freaking out. You understand that? God is not anti-possessions or anti-positions, but no one accuses a physician of hating skin for cutting it open to remove cancer, right? Do you understand that? If a physician opens skin to, to deal with cancer, you would say, that doctor hates skin. No. God loves blessing. God loves possession. He created, created things. He just knows that they have this ability to choke us out. Verse 22. This man reveals his failed test. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His response reveals his true heart's desire. See, he didn't really want salvation. Uh, he wanted, well, he, he probably did want salvation. He didn't, he didn't really want God, though. He wanted God to give him more of what he already had. More assurance, more influence, more success. His lips wanted heaven, but his heart wanted earth. You know, oftentimes what we say and what we really want are very different things, called cognitive dissonance, right? You, know, you, you may say you want this, but at the end of the day, your, your, your actions prove where your heart really is. It's what Jesus is getting at when he says, uh, in another place, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. You should memorize it, okay? Wherever you invest yourself, that's where your heart belongs, that's why you love your kids so much. That's why you love your wife if you invest in your marriage. And if you don't, you could probably take it or leave it. That's why you love your career because you spent 30 years, 40 years putting into it. You love your, 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 um, you know, your doctorate or your master's, or your bachelor's. You, you love your car because you, you saved up for it. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart belongs. And this man had been writing checks in the currency of this world. And Jesus said, all of that is worthless. And this man's entire heart was here on the earth. He couldn't get over it. Now, the disciples are watching all this always, right? And you could probably audibly hear the sound of their jaw hit the floor. <clunk> because these guys are thinking, oh, man, this guy's influential. He'll be like the Tim, T the Tim Tebow to Christianity. Great, we got a famous guy. Awesome. This guy's powerful, he's influential, he's got connections. This guy, he's holy, he's, he's righteous, he's followed the rules, he's a good guy. I mean, this guy's going to really be a power player on our team. And Jesus just scared him away. Jesus, do you want to fail at this whole thing? 
come on, this was the guy, this is LeBron James, man. He would have been the, no, that's not what Jesus does. They're completely confused by this, and they're about to get even more confused. 23, Jesus sees this opportunity for a lesson. That's what he does. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. Why are they amazed at his words? Well, I've already told you because first century Jews didn't see wealth as something, uh, anything other than the blessing of God. If you're right with God, he will bless you financially. Prosperity gospel in the first century. It's been around forever. Okay? Been around forever. This is the oldest legalistic lie in the book. If I do the right thing, God's going to give me the right things and he's going to let me do the things I want to do. Okay, so they're just short-circuited, just like the rich young ruler. They're short-circuited as to why Jesus would say, actually, the rich people, the successful people, the influential people are very, very, very scarcely able to get into the kingdom of God. This is paradigm shifting for these guys. And then Jesus is going to make it even more intense. Jesus said to them, again, children, notice he calls them children. I think that's him tipping his hand to the fact that they are Children, meaning they will be in the kingdom. Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus' point? Well, he picks the biggest animal in Palestine, and he picks the smallest hole in Palestine, and he says, can you fit a camel through an eye of a needle? What's the answer? No! Very simple. Not in the physical realm, not in the natural world. That's not possible. Jesus is trying to make a very drastic, extreme point with hyperbole here of the impossibility of rich persons entering into the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, this sets out some fear, I think, in these guys. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Great question. Who can be saved? You ever think about that? Read Romans 1 through 3. Read Ephesians chapter 2. You're dead and your trespasses and sins, even your righteousness is filthy rags before a holy and righteous God, even the most together person, his intentions or her intentions, the motives of her heart is disgusting before God. Who can be saved? It's a good question. Finally, the disciples are asking some good questions here. Who can be saved? And notice, Jesus looked at them, just like he looked at the rich young ruler. He looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, not with God, it is not impossible with God. For all things are possible with God. I'm so thankful for that verse. And I would think that the disciples are feeling pretty thankful too. (laughs) Because seriously, I mean, they're they're sitting there having an existential crisis. Like, are we saved? Are we going to get into the kingdom of God? Jesus reminds them where salvation comes from. It comes from the Lord. The Lord saves. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, has loved us, has adopted us, predestined us, called us to be his own, even though we are not worthy. Now, Peter's still not sure. He's still, he's still kind of like, hmm, not feeling very safe right now. So he asks another question. Peter began to say to him, well, we've left everything and followed you. 
Now, you could read this two ways. You could read this like arrogant, pompous Peter, like, well, we left everything. I don't think that's the right way to read it, actually. I think the right way to read it is Jesus is going, well, well we left everything. Are we good? Uh, we left our nets. Like, are we okay? Are you going to tell us that we're like a camel? And the kingdom is a needle? I mean, he's, he's concerned. He's worried about his own assurance. I think that's what Peter's trying to figure out here. In verse 29, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecution and in the age to come, salvation. Now, Jesus keeps this fairly vague. He says, Peter, I'm not going to give you overconfidence. Why? Because in the 12, there sits one who will end up being like the rich young ruler. His name is Judas. So Jesus doesn't want to get false confidence to the 12, but he does say, well, if you've given anything for the kingdom of God, it will be repaid to you. And we'll come back to that. In 31, he ends where he began, but many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. This is where Mark is intending for us to see the contrast between the young children who are the least in the society, are the highest in the kingdom, and this man who is highest in the society is least in the kingdom. Do you see it? Jesus is trying to communicate kingdom economics, upside down economics. Everything is opposite in the kingdom of God because we live in a perverted, deformed, twisted, sinful world. That's the passage. Now, I have a little bit of time to make a few points that I want you to see. This passage is clearly about salvation. It's, it's noted in verse 17, 23, 26, and 30. This is a, a passage about salvation. I want to make three truths that I think this passage makes that demand our extrapolation in regards to the topic of salvation, okay? Uh, they don't rhyme. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, we'll just do one at a time. Number one, this text, listen, this text is not a call to more doing. It is a call to true being. It is not a call to more doing. It is a call to true being. I want you to see again. You don't need to look at it. But just, just remember with me, what was the question of the rich young ruler? Rabbi, good teacher, what must I do? Okay. Doing was for this man all that he looked to to decide what his being was. His being came out of his doing, not the other way around. Doing for this man had become his being. Doing was what he was taught to do. Doing was what had given him success. See, he was successful at doing. Doing was stuff that he was good at. And doing was what people gave him praise for. Yeah, that rich young ruler, man, he does things well. He's a go-getter. It's very much like our culture. We praise people that are successful. We praise people that are good at accomplishing things. Movers, shakers, go-getters. We praise them. We pedestal them. We platform them. And this man had found a lot of praise in his doing, right? Doing has done well for him. Doing is really, at some point, began to become who he is. He sees himself as a doer. Have any of you guys out here, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you guys ever started to get your wires crossed like that? Where you start to forget that what you do is not who you are? That you start to find identity in how good you are at something? 
You start to find identity because people start to praise that you're good at something. You're very well at that. You're very accomplished at that. You're very uh, successful, efficient at that. And you start to go, wow, doing is really kind of feels good. You know what happens with doing is doing becomes a narcotic. I didn't used to think this way. I used to think that people that did drugs were people on the corner with, with needles in their arms, right? And I realized that drugs are everywhere. There's lots of different drugs. And successful uh, people that are, that are together and, and achievers and accomplishers and doers, they have their own drug. It's called the drug of doing. It's called the drug of doing. And, and, and just like any other drug, the drug of doing, the high comes more quickly at first, doesn't it? Like any drug, right? That's why the drug dealer gives you the first hit free because he wants to get you hooked. So maybe you were 10, and you realized that your dad only praised you when you did something well, and it set off some dopamine in your head. And then you learned, if I do things in front of dad, dad praises me. Now, that's not entirely evil, but the, thing, the problem with drugs is you need more. You need more, you need more, you need more. Then you found, you know what, when I do certain things at school, my teachers praise me. When I do certain things on the court, my coach praises me. When I do certain things in academics, my, my teacher praises me, whatever it is. And before you know it, this drug of doing begins to have you. I'm talking to the type A people here today, okay? Just so you know. And, and, and before you know it, you're hooked. You're addicted. I can't stop working. 60 hours, not enough. 65 hours, not enough. I got to do more because I want that high. I want that feeling of security and knowing that I'm on top of it. I'm ahead of things. I'm ahead of the game. Nothing's going to get me. I'm doing enough. This is the drug that this man is strung out on when he falls before Jesus, and Jesus knows it. He wants to help this man get clean. So what does he tell him to do, right? He tells him, and now it almost seems like Jesus' prescription is to go do more. But if that's how you see it, you're reading it wrong. Jesus isn't telling the man to go do more. What he's actually doing is he's telling the man to stop doing and start giving. He's telling the man to stop doing and start following. He's telling the man to stop doing and start trusting. He's telling him to stop controlling and start receiving. He's telling him to stop accumulating and start giving. He's telling him to stop working and start believing. He's telling him to to trade in his false sense of self and his thin sense of security for a new eternal identity and a new eternal security. See, all of his doing was not done in faith. What was it done in? It was done for self. I want to do so that I can get the rewards, so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can feel like I'm in control. Jesus says, I want to help you get off that drug. Some of you out there deal with this drug. I deal with that drug. You know, often, oftentimes we look at the successful or achiever, people that work hard, and we, we just don't worry about them. Oh, he works hard. He must be fine. No, you don't understand People that overwork, people that overcontrol, people that overdo, people that overthink, they're hooked on the drug of doing. And only the gospel will free them from that drug. So how do we quit the drug of achievement? Some of you guys are hooked to the drug of achievement. You want to do more. You want to achieve more. How do you quit? I'll tell you, not by doing less. Doing less is more doing. I've seen guys do this. I've seen guys that are type A, obsessed with doing, and all of a sudden they get into minimalism. And they're like, I'm going to do less. They're like, that's your doing now. Now you're just doing more by doing less. That's your new version of doing. Stop it. 
So just doing less isn't necessarily going to solve your idolatry. It's not just going to solve your addiction to doing an achievement. No, Jesus puts his finger on it, and he knows what it is. What you need to do is you need to exchange your drug of doing for the drug, the superior drug of being. What do you, what's the drug of being? What I mean by that, I don't mean is being satisfied in yourself. I mean the superior drug of being content and happy with who God has made you to be. It is a superior high. Jesus is putting it forth before this man. He's saying, hey, leave everything you've known, sell all you have, and get what? Me. Jesus isn't saying, Hey, go sell everything you have and have nothing. He's saying, go sell everything you have and get me, the superior value in the universe. Amen. Thank you, Heidi. Jesus here sees this man. He loves this man. He offers himself to this man, and he invites this man. If you just take those four things, this man has more riches right there than his entire life combined. He is seen by Christ. He is loved by Christ. He is called by Christ, and he is going to get Christ. Believer, that's what you have. You are seen by Christ. You are loved by Christ. You are called by Christ, and you will inherit Christ. That is your treasure. That is what you cling to. And this man saw that treasure, and all he could think about was what he was losing. So sad. The way that we quit the drug of achieving is not by doing more. It is by realizing more. Realizing what is already ours. You don't have to keep doing to keep up this idea of who you are. You have a new identity in Christ. So, first thing, the text is not a call to more doing, it is a call to true being. Number two, I want you to see this. The text is not just about a man's inability to follow, it is about God's ability to save. You know, we read this passage, and in all of our emphasis, all of our focus, the centerpiece becomes man's failure to choose God, and that is certainly at work. But what does Jesus make the centerpiece of this text? God's ability to save. See, here's the thing. We don't know what happened with this guy. It seems to me like Jesus is actually um, being kind of optimistic. They're like, that guy didn't get saved? Jesus is like, with God, anyone can get saved. See, we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. I would like to think that our God, who is so good at saving, saved this man. Can't prove it. Maybe he's Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe he's the rich man who gave his tomb to Christ. I don't know. We don't give, we're not given his name. But regardless, I would like to consider that the, the, the centerpiece of this is not how terrible we are at choosing God. It's how good God is at saving us. That he can get camels through the eye of needles. Because I don't know about you, but I am the rich young ruler. And if God had not come after me, I would not have chosen him. Consider the Apostle Paul. You want to talk about a camel. Jesus stopped him on the road and basically told him, you're going to follow me now. <laughs> Our God is a God who saves. Now, listen, I want to put a finer point on this. There is a brand of Christianity now that would look really at the interaction that Jesus has with the rich young ruler and go, that's not seeker-friendly enough. 
We need to make a brand of Christianity that is very inclusive, that doesn't call anyone to repent, that doesn't call them to leave anything or cleave to the, to the Lord or, or give up anything. We need to make a brand of Christianity that's just happy and your best life now, and there's just wide open gates, right? It's called a seeker-friendly movement. Let's make Jesus a little more accessible. There's only one problem with that. Jesus wasn't that Jesus, okay? When we do that, when we change the gospel to make it more palatable, we insult, listen to me, we insult the sovereignty of God to save sinners, when we say, I don't want to tell this person the true gospel, which is a gospel of repentance, because I don't want to offend them, I don't want to, I don't want to soil the deal, I don't want to ruin my chance to make a convert. When we do that, we insult God's ability to save. My aunt got saved listening to John Corson talk about tribulation and judgment in the book of Revelation, right? And, and, and her sister's sitting there like, oh, I shouldn't have brought her on this week. I should have brought her on a different week, but... She got saved to that. God saves. He can save. Just give the gospel as it is. I'm getting a little too excited. I'm going to calm down. Number three. This is important. Don't miss this. This text is not just a call to future bliss. It is a call to present blessing. Okay, there's a verse in here in this passage that blew my mind this week. It just blew my mind. I don't know how I hadn't thought about it before, but it's so incredible. I believe part of the reason that this man walked away sorrowful was because he only thought Jesus was offering him eternal joy. What he didn't realize was that Jesus was offering him immediate joy. We've made a mistake sometimes in Christianity where we overemphasize the eternal. We overemphasize heaven. And in so doing, we underemphasize the joy and the value of following Jesus now. Look again at verse 29. You got to see it. It's so cool. You got to see it. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold win." Now, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands per with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. I just don't know how I didn't see this before. Jesus is like, listen, you guys are going to get a hundred times what you've lost, not in eternity, that's a given. Now. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Is he that prosperity gospel? Is he saying, like, God's going to, you know, give us... 100 times the amount of money that we had if we follow Jesus? No, no, that's not, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? We need to know what he's saying. What, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, he means exactly what he said. Imagine that. He means exactly what he said. First, he says, you might lose blood family. And uh, how many of you guys have had to um, become the target of your physical family? You don't need to raise your hands. Physical family because you became a Christian. Probably a lot of you. He's saying some of you might give up family. Some of you might give up brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, children to follow me. He's saying you will get that back a hundredfold. What is he talking about? Look around you. Look around you. It's the church. He's saying you're going to get the church. You are going to get new mothers in Christ, new fathers in Christ. You are adopted into a new family, new brothers, new sisters, 
You know, I found a journal entry from four years, three and a half years ago, six months before we moved out here to plant this church. And I was at a really solid church, really good job, and, and, I, and I was doing well there, and everybody was thankful for me, appreciated. We had a nice house, and everything was really sort of comfortable. And I knew God was, like, pushing me out of the womb, like, it's time to go plant a church. Okay, it's terrifying. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm going to be able to feed my family? Does that mean that, I mean, what, is that, what could that look like? I had no idea what it was going to look like. And I sat down, and I'm going to write down the ten things that come to my head, my biggest fears. So I wrote them down. Boom, 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 boom. And most of them were practical. I'm afraid that I won't be able to be a provider for my family. I'm afraid that I'm going to move my wife and family to this new community in Grants Pass, and uh, the church is going to fail, and my wife's going to resent me, and, and, and the kids are going to hate this memory of this terrible thing where dad was gone all the time, and, 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 and what if nobody comes, and what if, it, what if it's not healthy, and what if, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if? Wrote them all down. And then I put that away and never thought about it again. I pulled that out the other day, and I was reading, and I was thinking about you guys. <laughs> I was like, holy cow hundred times. I'm not just saying that to flatter you guys. Like God has provided 100 times what we left in this church. Like God has given us so, I mean, we, I was worried about leaving our support system. I was worried about leaving some of our friendships. I was worried about leaving all of that. And God has given us all of that. It's incredible. He's so good. He says you might lose family. He also says you might lose houses, children, lands. That's shorthand for security and provision and comfort. Okay, he says you will gain a hundredfold. Notice he says in persecution. So that means Jesus isn't saying that if you follow me, your life's going to be roses. You're not going to have any hard things. You're never going to have struggles. You're never going to get sick. You're never going to have hardships. No, he's saying if you follow me, you will find superior joy in the furnace of your stresses, of your struggles. Now, you have to remember that the people reading this were being persecuted, state-sponsored persecution by Rome. This is encouraging for them. Jesus is reminding them that this new community of Christ that they are now integrated in, of mothers and fathers that is rooted in the eternal Trinitarian love of God, this koinonia fellowship that we have centered in the gospel that we see in the book of Acts where we're radically generous for one another, to one another, loving one another, caring for one another, is so much better than what you have in this world without the church. And some of you are saying, well, I've never experienced that. And my answer to that would be, you need to get into the church. And I don't just mean sitting in a church service. You need to get into the church. You need to start pressing on the life of the body. The body is a life, a living organism, a, a, a literal body with different parts that will feed you, edify you, encourage you, and carry you with the gospel and with care. That's the function of the church. Jesus is saying the church is going to become this thing for you that you are giving, that you're losing, even through persecution. So to summarize, you have to see that this life is only a great joy when your greatest joy is not this life. Now let me summarize. Let me just conclude here. When you became a Christian, you filed bankruptcy on this world's economy and you started a new account somewhere else. That's what Christianity is. It's coming to the crossroads, the crisis point, where you say, I can't continue in this world anymore. I'm giving everything that I have to the Lord, and I'm starting over. All of my sense of self, all of my sense of security, all of my sense of identity, all of it is now found in Christ. And we forget that, don't we? The Christian life is about continuing to come back to that crisis point where we remember, oh yeah, I gave up that, but I get Jesus and his bride. I get eternal life and the spirit and the mission of God.
Don't be fooled. Listen, don't be fooled by other people's doing. Some of you come up here and you see people that seem like they got it all together. And you're thinking, well, man, I'm just jacked. No. People are really good at putting on a facade of doing. Okay? People are good at putting on a facade of doing. This church, I want the culture, man, by God's grace, could this culture be so rooted in the gospel <clears throat> that we just don't put ourselves out there as successful doers. We put ourselves out there as camels that have been passed through a needle. Just the first thing, man, you need to know what a wreck I am and what God has done in my life. Because, guys, achievers are broken too. You have no idea. God has been good. He has been gracious. He has adopted us into his new community. And let's humbly walk as camels who have graciously been passed through the needle of God's grace and never forget that you are the Bob in the story. I don't care how together you are. Amen? Father, thank you for this passage. What a reminder it is, God, that we just simply cannot do enough. I pray, Lord, in here for everyone like me that has been addicted to the drug of achievement, of doing, of leveling up, of being on top of things. God, it's not that you don't want us to do. It's not that you don't want us to accomplish. But, Lord, would you just give us new, a new root system that is sourced in you instead of stuff, instead of doing, instead of achieving. Would you help us to be first and then do? to be those who are adopted, chosen, loved, perfectly called. Now we get to do because of who you have made us, God. I just pray that over this group. Lord, this morning as we, we break into some groups, as we have about 15 minutes of discussion, I pray, Lord, that for anyone that would be nervous about that, Lord, that you would just calm them, that we could just be a family here this morning, that we could just have a conversation and really drive home and think through some of these things, Father, that you brought up in the text. Lord, we love you. We invite you through this time of fellowship. I pray, Lord, that we would really get to know each other and this would be just a, just a really good time of, of true, authentic community. In Jesus' name, amen.